Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. If you'd like to see the various aircraft described today, please check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. So, if I say naval aviation to you, what comes to mind? I'm pretty sure what you just saw in your mind's eye was flat-top aircraft carriers launching and recovering aircraft. Depending on what turns your crank, you're either seeing Hellcats, Avengers, Corsairs, Sea Furies, or even Vals, Cates, and Zeros. Or maybe you went to the danger zone and saw F-14s. But there was a whole other type of naval aviation that doesn't need an actual aircraft carrier. And that is the catapult-launched seaplane. And an example of one of the most successful types of those is the subject of today's episode. And it's the Vought OS2U Kingfisher, which was a suggestion by listener Dave Longmere. Since the earliest days of naval warfare, seeing the other guy is always best. When they had sailing ships, you'd put some poor schmuck up the crow's nest to look for the enemy. Spy glasses and binoculars were invented, and they helped too. They even tried observation kites and balloons to get higher to see. But almost immediately after the invention of heavier-than-air aircraft, Navy started to think about how to use these machines to get up in the sky to look over the horizon for the enemy fleet. But first, they needed a flying machine that operated on the water, and for that, they would have to wait until the 28th of March, 1910, when a Frenchman, Henri Fabre, flew the first successful powered seaplane, which was called the Hydroavion, which was a trimaran floatplane powered by a Nome Omega engine. It does seem strange to me that it took seven years from the Wright Brothers land-based flyer to a successful seaplane. In the early days of aviation, of course, there were no runways, but a seaplane could have a runway wherever there was a body of water. But as soon as someone figured out how to do it, navies were very interested in seaplanes. The first to come up with a way to operate these machines was the French and the British. In 1911, the French modified their ship, called the Foudre, for this type of operation. The good ship Foudre seemed like the Swiss Army knife of the French Navy. It had first been commissioned in 1896 as a torpedo boat tender. And for those of you who don't know, a tender is a ship or boat that supports other ships. So the original Foudre would bring the torpedo boats out to sea and launch them for the attack. Later, her role changed to repair ship in 1907, and then to a mine layer in 1910. Finally, in 1911, she was again modified, this time to a seaplane carrier, and was set up to carry four Canard Voisin seaplanes. Initially, the ship would lower the seaplane into the water and then pick it up again afterwards. But, in 1913, she was fitted with a 30-foot flight deck for takeoff and again would pick up the seaplane after it had landed on the water by crane. The British HMS Hermes employed a similar system. So once radios were installed in these type of aircraft operating off of ships, 
they were found to be very useful in finding targets. After the battle was joined, they would observe where the shots from the big guns were falling for trajectory corrections and could accurately assess the damage being done to the enemy ships. As time went on, more uses could be found for these aircraft, including directing submarines to targets for torpedo attack, search and rescue missions, and air cover for infantry amphibious operations. Catapult launched and crane recovered aircraft became a must-have for capital ships. And it is into this environment that our Vought OS-2U Kingfisher was born. Design and Development In the mid-1930s, the U.S. Navy was using a single-engine biplane, the Curtis Seagull, as their catapult-launched seaplane. However, it was underpowered and the Navy almost immediately began looking for a replacement. The Vought Company had a very long history with the U.S. Navy. In 1922, it was a Vought VE-7 trainer that had made the first takeoff from the deck of the USS Langley, which was the first American aircraft carrier. In the late 1930s, realizing that the Navy was seeking something to replace the Seagull, Vought tasked engineer Rex B. Basil to work on the project. We'll hear about him later on in another episode when we talk about the super-famous Corsair. Basil and his Vought team planned for a long-ranged, rugged aircraft that would be very versatile for multi-role functionality, not just observing and spotting. Basil designed the aircraft around the Pratt & Whitney R985 Wasp Jr., which, as the name implies, was a smaller version of the Wasp engine for use in medium-sized aircraft. It was an air-cooled, nine-cylinder radial with a gear-driven, single-speed, centrifugal-type supercharger. Wasp Juniors have powered such other famous and extremely successful water-based aircraft as the de Havilland Canada DHC-2 Beaver and Grumman G-21 Goose. Although a great engine, it was on the small size for a aircraft such as the Kingfisher, and these aircraft would never be breaking any speed records. But there was thinking behind this choice of engine. It was lighter and had less fuel consumption than its bigger brother, which was good. Attached to this engine, they designed a low-wing cantilever monoplane fuselage with a big cockpit and a huge canopy with excellent visibility for the pilot, who was seated in front of the wing, and the crewman in the back who would be busy acting as a observer or radio operator or gunner, depending on the need. There was a third seat in between the two in order to carry a passenger if need be. In order to get all they could out of the aircraft with the modest engine power of the Wasp Jr., Basil designed high lift devices into the wing, including massive deflector plate flaps and ailerons that drooped basically making the entire trailing edge of the wing a massive flap to increase the camber of the wing and thus create additional lift. Spoilers were mounted on the upper wing surfaces to provide roll control. Vought also developed spot welding to create a smooth fuselage with less drag, but that would be still very strong and resist buckling. 
The fuselage was mounted on top of a single large float under the fuselage and smaller stabilizing floats mounted outboard on each wing. Supposedly there was a fairly simple system for swapping out the floats for the wheels. For fighting, the pilot had a 30 caliber Browning M1919 machine gun mounted low in the right front cockpit and firing between the engine cylinder heads. The radio operator gunner had one or two 30 calibers on a flexible ring mount. The aircraft would be able to carry two bombs or two depth charges. Prototypes. The first prototype flew in 1938 under the Navy designation XOS2U1 and unlike some aircraft which have long periods of teething pains and trouble working out kinks and bugs, this aircraft was basically good and ready to go from the start. The US Navy ordered a first batch of 54 right away. Although Vought had called their float planes Corsairs previously, this time they decided to name their aircraft after the Kingfisher, a bird that, as the name implies, does live near rivers and eat fish, although it can live away from the water and live on bugs and such too. It's a really pretty bird with orange and blue colorings, and I'll post a picture of one in action on the water, just like its airplane's namesake. Production. Almost all Kingfishers were built by Vought in three variants, although there wasn't much difference between the variants. The main variant was the OS-2U-3, which had self-sealing fuel tanks and additional armor protection installed for the crew. In 1939, the Navy ordered 158 more aircraft, including more than 100 that would be delivered as land planes for shore-based anti-submarine work, although these aircraft came with the float kits in order to switch back to seaplanes if needed. In 1940, the Navy asked for 1,006 more. I don't know what it is about the U.S. Navy with their uh, strange order numbers. 1,006, 158, 54, why not a round number? Anyway, I don't know. But they needed 1,006 more. The Kingfisher was becoming the workhorse of the fleet. Eventually, all U.S. battleships and cruisers would be carrying them, and some were transferred to other nations as part of Lend-Lease. Even five destroyers were equipped to carry Kingfishers. The U.S. Navy was worried that Vought would not be able to build enough Kingfishers without impacting the production of their other important naval aircraft, the Corsair. So, the Navy built 300 Kingfishers itself, at its own naval aircraft factory beginning in 1942. Operational History There were Kingfishers sitting on Battleship Row catapults on December 7, 1941, and they went along wherever the fleet went when the U.S. Navy went on the offensive. This was even as their designed role as naval gunnery spotter declined. Naval guns were soon being aimed by better and better radar equipment, and as most World War II battles at sea were being fought by carrier-based aircraft, the slow Kingfisher would be a sitting duck in the middle of that kind of aerial combat. But the aircraft was versatile enough to play an important role right up until the end of the war. 
inshore patrol squadron Kingfishers flew hours and hours of unglamorous but vital anti-submarine patrols off the coasts of America. With full fuel and carrying one depth charge, they could typically cover patrol radiuses of about 350 miles, although at shorter ranges they could carry two depth charges. And these aircraft weren't always the mall cop version of warplanes in that they would just observe and report. They could fight too. On the afternoon of 15th of July, 1942, the USS Unicoi was escorting a convoy off of Cape Lookout, North Carolina, when a German U-boat attacked and torpedoed three merchant ships. When the submarine surfaced only 350 yards from Unicoi, the ship fired a shell and scored a hit. Right after, two Kingfishers who were on the convoy's air cover swooped in on the submarine and dropped their depth charges. One of them actually hit the submarine and slid off before blowing up along the sub's side. Four depth charges were dropped and the U-boat went down, leaving behind an oil slick and debris field. In the Western Aleutians, Kingfishers attacked and bombed Japanese-occupied shore installations. And, in a true rarity for this aircraft that was not designed for dogfighting, a Kingfisher shot down a Mitsubishi A6M50 near Iwo Jima in February 1945. For an airplane whose main role had evaporated, the Kingfisher seemed to fit for many roles for which it hadn't really been designed. They ended up serving with the real naval airplanes on board the aircraft carriers Saratoga, Wasp, and Hornet. Because of severe shortages of training aircraft, some Kingfishers went to NAS Pensacola and NAS Jacksonville to serve as trainers for transition from primary to intermediate flight training. It uh, just proves how stable and forgiving these aircraft were because none of them were fitted with dual controls. Even though Kingfishers were no longer being used for spotting ship versus ship gunfighting, they were later called up to direct the big battleship shore bombardments that preceded the amphibious assaults of the Pacific Island Hopping Campaigns. Also, more and more, Kingfishers would be serving as search and rescue aircraft and would forever be fondly remembered by downed airmen as the sweet sound of salvation coming in from the sky to save them. And Kingfishers didn't just serve with the U.S. Navy. 52 went to the Royal Navy, where they were known as Kingfisher Ones. They served as scouts and flew from catapult-equipped merchant and light cruisers. 18 went to the Royal Australian Air Force, where they did offshore patrol duties. And a handful also ended up flying for Chile, Mexico, Uruguay, and the Dominican Republic. Pilots so how did the launch and recovery of these aircraft actually happen? While embarked, they were usually stored and serviced while still on their launch catapults. And these looked like big girders mounted on a swivel table. When it was time for a mission, the crew would climb aboard and start the engine and do their pre-flight checks and run up. Once the engine was properly warmed up and they were ready to go, the catapult was swung out 
and the ship turned so that the catapult was pointing towards the relative wind, which helped to produce additional lift. The aircraft were then launched with a 8-inch black powder charge, basically an artillery shell blank, which gave the Kingfisher a velocity of 60 knots at the end of the catapult run, which was enough for level flight. It must have been a real kick in the pants. After the mission, the ship would make a sweeping turn in order to create a smooth patch of water in its lee, and it was there that the Kingfisher would set down. Then the plane would water taxi alongside the ship. Sometimes the ship would be towing a sled in the water that the aircraft would taxi up to and lock on before being hooked on to the top of the fuselage and then winched aboard. I've also seen instances where there is no sled, but the observer climbs out on the roof of the aircraft to snag and snap on the line to the roof before the engine is shut down and they are pulled on board. I'm going to talk about three pilots in this section. The first one is Eddie Rickenbacker, and as far as I know, he never flew the Kingfisher. So why are we talking about him? If you haven't heard of him, it's understandable. He has faded somewhat into history, but he really shouldn't have. He's one of those guys in history where you wonder how one single person could have done so much in one lifetime. Here's just a brief rundown. He was born on April 8, 1890, and grew up dirt poor, being forced to drop out of school early when his father was murdered. He went on to become a self-taught mechanic, and then a race car driver, where he was known as Fast Eddie. In 1916, he joined a British racing company and traveled to the UK, where he was actually surveilled by Scotland Yard for being a possible spy. Remember, it was the middle of the First World War, and he had a funny-sounding, foreign-sounding last name, and also because a Los Angeles newspaper had one time played up the race car driver's reputation, describing him as, quote, the disowned son of a Prussian noble, close quotes. Just before the U.S. entered World War I, Eddie tried to convince the U.S. government to create a fighter squadron made up of racing crew. He figured that they would be great judges of speed and could bring their own mechanics. The government chose to ignore this high school dropout's ideas. However, based on his racing reputation, he did get a job and a rank of sergeant acting as a chauffeur for U.S. generals in France. While he was there, he impressed plenty of people including Lieutenant Colonel Billy Mitchell, who offered to make him the chief engineer at his aerodrome. Eddie said yes, but only if he could get flying training on the side. He trained as a fighter pilot, and later on went on to earn 26 kills in combat, which was the American record until it was surpassed a long time later by Richard Bong's 40 kills earned in a P-38 Lightning in World War II. Eddie earned eight Distinguished Service Crosses, one of them which was converted to a Medal of Honor in 1930. You'd think that all of that would be enough for one person's lifetime. But between the wars, he designed cars, bought and ran the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for 10 years, met and married 
an heiress. He bought and sold the Allison Engine Company. And he was VP for General Motors and formed and ran Eastern Airlines. Somewhat like Lindbergh, Eddie was an America firster and isolationist and had clashed very publicly with President Roosevelt over many policies, including the New Deal. However, when the war in Europe broke out, Eddie renounced his isolationist stance and started working to support Britain's war effort, including using Eastern Airlines to transport munitions and supplies. In 1942, Henry Stimson, the U.S. Secretary of War, gave Eddie a sweeping letter of authorization, which basically allowed him to go anywhere and do just about anything for the war effort. It was during this time that Eddie was tasked by Stimson to hand-deliver a letter from President Roosevelt to General Douglas MacArthur in the Pacific. Although the contents of the letter have never been made public, it is suspected that the letter was to tell the outspoken general to knock it off with his public criticisms of the president, his administration, and General Marshall. I guess Stimson thought that Eddie, who had also had his differences with the president, was the right one to deliver the message and convince MacArthur to be more of a team player. Are you beginning to wonder when the Kingfisher is going to come into this story? Well, please just hold on a little longer. For his mission, Eddie was provided with a B-17D to use as his transport aircraft, and he was on board this aircraft when a defect in a navigation instrument put them hundreds of miles off course in enemy-controlled waters and out of touch with anyone else. They disappeared. So, this super-famous guy and national treasure has gone missing. Imagine, you know, Elon Musk, if he had been a fighter pilot, had the greatest number of kills in history, was a Medal of Honor winner, and had just gone missing in the Pacific. So that's the degree of fame that this guy had. So for days and days, the USAAF and the US Navy searched for Eddie and his crew. But after two weeks, the search was called off. Newspapers and radio broadcasts reported that the national icon, Eddie Rickenbacker, was dead. However, his wife played her VIP card and made a public appeal to continue the search, and it was extended by one week. On November 13th, Eddie and three other crew members were floating at sea in a tiny raft. They were hypothermic, sunburnt, starving, and almost mad with thirst. Sometime during that long day, they heard something. They must have wondered at their own senses by that time, but at some point that sound must have become more defined and recognizable to the airmen including the consummate mechanic and pilot, Eddie. It was the sound of a radial engine. It was the sound of a Pratt & Whitney R985 Wasp Jr. engine that was powering Lieutenant William F. 80s OS2U3 Kingfisher. He spotted and rescued the castaways 
and was awarded the Navy's Air Medal for his efforts. Sadly, Lieutenant Aidy would be lost at sea himself when he and his Kingfisher never returned from a later patrol, and he was never found. Rickenbacker recovered, completed his trip, and delivered his message to General MacArthur. After the war, he continued to run Eastern Airlines until he died in 1973. His eulogy was given by none other than Lieutenant General Jimmy Doolittle. The last pilot I'm going to tell you about is Lieutenant Junior Grade John Burns. In April 1944, U.S. carrier-based aircraft were attacking the Japanese-held Pacific Island of Truk. The Japanese were tenaciously holding on to their island and had shot up multiple U.S. aircraft, including an Avenger and an F-6F Hellcat that had nonetheless managed to limp away smoking and full of holes from the battle to set down in the ocean. The crews climbed into their rafts and tried to stay away from the island and avoid capture by the Japanese. John Burns was from Wynwood, Pennsylvania, and had begun his flight training in January 1940 and received his wings later that same year. He was commissioned an ensign, and assigned to Observation Squadron VO-6 on board the battleship North Carolina. On the day in question, Burns and his buddy, Lieutenant John Doddle Jr., had both been launched off the battleship in their Kingfishers to look for downed airmen. They soon spotted a downed Hellcat pilot in the water. The decision was made for Doddle's Kingfisher to land to pick up the fighter pilot, which he did. While maneuvering on the rough seas, Doddle's Kingfisher was hit by a severe gust of wind which flipped over his aircraft. Now, Doddle and his radio man, aviation radio man second class Robert Hill, were in the water too, clinging to the wreck of their Kingfisher along with the Hellcat pilot. Seeing his buddy already being flipped over and pondering the five-foot seas below, Burns and his radio man, aviation radio man, second class, Aubrey Gill, must have been uncertain about their own chances. But they decided to give it a shot in putting down their own Kingfisher on the water. But they did land and successfully picked up the three wet airmen. And luckily enough, a U.S. submarine, the USS Tang, had surfaced nearby and so Burns taxied his Kingfisher over to the sub and offloaded the three rescued airmen. He then took off to look for more. It didn't take long when Burns saw three more rafts and gave their positions by radio to the Tang and set up to circle the survivors until the sub arrived. However, the sub wasn't showing up. The Tang had headed off in another direction to rescue other downed airmen. After a while of circling, Burns was worried that Tang just might never come. So he made the gutsy decision again and landed to pick up the men in the rafts. Even while he was doing that, another Avenger ditched nearby and jumped onto their life rafts. Burns taxied over to their position, threw them a line, and tried to tow them. But this threatened to swamp the rafts. So the crewman climbed onto Burns Kingfisher, hanging onto the wings and fuselage wherever they could. Unable to fly, and barely able to float, with his ten extra wet survivors clinging to his plane, Burns turned and taxied toward Tang. 
On the way, the sea got even rougher, and it is a testament to the toughness of the kingfisher that the airplane survived at all, being heavily weighed down and pushing through one five-foot wave after another. The ocean was basically trying to disassemble the aircraft the whole way. Finally, Burns got over to Tang and offloaded everyone, including himself, onto the submarine, but not before one of the crew in the sub snapped a picture of them. I'll put it up on the Facebook page, but imagine a grainy but recognizable image of a kingfisher from the rear with the propeller stopped and two guys sitting on each wing and a bunch of them clustered at the wing roots leaning on the fuselage. This plane is so heavily laden that the tail is awash in the sea. Burns got the Navy Cross for his efforts and all the airmen got the chance to act as submariners as Tang didn't bring them home right away and continued on its patrol before finally getting them back. The only sad thing about the story was that Burns' noble steed, his faithful kingfisher, had been so badly damaged during the rescue that it had to be scuttled by the sub crew with their deck gun. They waited until he had gone below so that he didn't have to see it. Survivors The Kingfisher is an example of one of those aircraft that survives even after other airplanes were designed, built, and commissioned to replace them. The Curtis SO-3C Seamew, which actually looks pretty similar to the Kingfisher, except with an inline engine. The Ranger air-cooled inverted V-shaped inline engine was actually one of the main problems with the Seamew, as it was never reliable, no matter how much tinkering they did to try to fix it. Also, the Seamew had major stability problems. Lastly, it had a terrible name. Seamew is a terrible name. Anyway, the U.S. offered 100 of them to the Royal Navy, and they said, no thanks. One pilot wrote of the Seamew, opening quotes, it is hard to imagine how, even in wartime, such an aircraft could have been accepted from the factory, let alone given valuable cargo space across the Atlantic. Close quotes. But the Kingfishers just kept on trucking. It finally took the introduction of the Curtis SE Seahawk in October 1944 to finally begin the process of retiring the Kingfishers. Of the 1,519 Kingfishers built, None are presently airworthy, although you can see the National Air and Space Museum's Kingfisher at the Boeing Aviation Hangar at the Stephen F. Udzar Hazy Center in Chantilly, Virginia. At the battleship North Carolina in Wilmington, Virginia, you can also see a Kingfisher. If you're ever there, take a minute to think about Lieutenant Burns, who was launched from that very ship in a plane just like the one on display, to save his brother airmen in peril on the high seas. I'd like to thank Dale Longmere for making the suggestion for doing an episode on this aircraft. I probably wouldn't have chosen it on my own, and I honestly didn't know much about it before starting my research. But from that point on, I found the aircraft, its design, and role, and operating environment to be so unique and interesting and I hope you guys found it interesting too. If you like what you've heard today, please give me a good review and share with your friends. And if you've got some feedback, good or bad, drop me a line. 
You can use the email address uh, on the show notes or via the Facebook page on Messenger. Thanks a lot. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird 17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.